Charlie Teo. It's so good to speak to you on a podcast. I mean, I get to speak to you, you know, when we're sailing around the Hawkesbury or catching up at, for lunches and swanky places. But um, it's good to hear. It's good to speak to you about your life and your career and the, the difference that you're making within the community. So thank you for joining us on this it's podcast. It's a pleasure. No, it's a great honour to be interviewed by the Lane Beachley. <laughs> <laughs> so I've read your CV. It is 60 pages long. Um, <laughs> so many things to take out of it. And, of course, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but you uh, have been Australia's, the Australian Reader's Digest most trusted person three times, I might add. Um, that's Well, you know you've made it if that's the case. Been published in over 120 publications. You've written two books. You've contributed to 30 others. You're a senior lecturer, director, advisor, professor here and in other countries around the world, including the USA, Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. A brilliant neurosurgeon and a devoted family man. On this podcast, we're all about transparency, and I like to get a bit of breaking news. Is there one thing that you can share with us that you've never shared publicly anywhere else before? <laughs> I've always wanted to say something that, you know, because I've been placed on this pedestal as a a person who gives hope and someone who's devoted their life to saving others, I mean, it's all lovely and I love the accolades, but unfortunately some people interpret that as me being a bit of an angel and having no uh, flaws. And I have wanted someone to ask me, you know, what, you know, what are your flaws? I mean, are you an angel? Are you as good as people think you are? Are you as lovely as people think you are? And no, I have actually wanted to say at times, you know, I'm, I'm actually not that perfect. And so when that, there was some negative media about me last year, I was on the front page of a major newspaper and went for three days. And when I read it, I thought, yeah, thank God someone's come out and, and actually, you know, made me a real person because, you know, I do have my flaws and I, I think people should know that because, you know, the worst thing about social media these days is that when you see those photos of people that have been photoshopped and you think, oh, my God, why can't I look like that or why can't I have the perfect life? Why don't I have, a, I have the perfect partner? But a lot of it is fake and, you know, I, I, I like being real and I like people to know that I'm real. Those newspaper articles came out and said, you know, he tells these terrible know, sexist jokes. Well, the fact is I mm. do. I mean, yes. you know, in the operating room when I'm concentrating on a brain tumour and I'm not concentrating on being PC, I will tell a, a sexist joke. And, you know, I'm not proud of it, but it is a flaw in me and I, and I, you know, I'm very happy to admit that that's a flaw, that I too tell dirty jokes and some people find them offensive and, and a lot of people don't. Uh, Why do you tell them? Uh, I think they're funny. I personally think they're funny. And you know, you I'm one of these. Like a bit of a distraction. Yeah, actually, maybe maybe that is the reason I do it because it does break the uh, the tension in the room, and it does sort of bring things down to a very base base level. And when when these things are said about you, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of young people will will learn a lot from this by just hearing the fact when people are saying really negative things about you. How do you choose to respond to it? What keeps you centered and grounded in your truth and how you feel about yourself? Well, I'm actually not the best person to ask because I do get upset when I read uh, false allegations. Now, if they're allegations and they're actually true, then I'm always relieved. It's almost like a weight of my shoulders. Thank God everyone knows about it. I don't have to hide it now uh, or I don't have to be ashamed of it. 
But when it's false, no, it does affect me. I feel like, you know, getting on top of the mountain and yelling out, you know, I am not that person. I didn't do that. <laughs> and, for example, you know, it also said that I had used uh, my power to sexually harass a female trainee. Well, firstly, I would never do that. Secondly, I don't have power because everyone knows I don't have power. I don't have any station whatsoever. I don't have any titles. I'm not, I'm not powerful when it comes to the neurosurgical fraternity. And thirdly, I've never had a female trainee. So it was all pure fabrication and pure lies, and that offended me and that upset me. And no matter how many people tell you that you should ignore it and you know, it won't be so important tomorrow, it still, it still hurts you and it still does affect you psychologically and emotionally. Absolutely, and it's good to hear that you're human, right? Because uh, when people say don't let it affect you, the thing is it already has. So if you're yes. suppressing the emotion that's associated with it, then you're causing yourself other harm. Yeah, look, I'm a strong believer in that. Yeah, let it all out. If it's upset you, you know, yell, scream, show that you're upset because I think that is in some ways therapeutic. Mm, absolutely. I also feel that one of the things that you're deeply grounded in is your values. And a lot of people going through their lives not even knowing what their values are, let alone having the courage and the conviction to stand for them. So you seem to be really clear on what's important in life and what your values are. How did you establish them? And then can you share with us what they are today? Because I know they evolve as we do as human beings. Oh, I can put it all down to my mum. You know, the whole argument about uh, nature or nurture is actually being uh, clarified today with uh, genetic modelling, sequencing of genes, et cetera, et cetera. And I hate to say it, but a lot of it is nature. Uh, mm. So nurturing, I'm sure, has some role to play, but a lot of it is nature. So, you know, any good qualities that I have or and indeed any bad qualities I have, I put it all down to my mum and dad. You know, my mum practiced many of the qualities that she taught me and that I naturally sort of inherited, you know, that you should never think you're above anyone else, that everyone's got something to offer you, you know, uh, it's better to give than to receive. Those very, very good basic qualities came from my mum. Although she tried to teach them to me by telling me proverbs, her first language was in English and her proverbs were all mixed up anyway. So, <laughs> so I never quite understood what she meant. You know, she'd always just say, you know, Charlie, up a ladder, down a ladder. And I, and I used to think, oh, yeah, okay, okay. But when you think about it, what does that mean? Like it was, what she was <laughs> yeah, trying to say, that, that you know, what goes up comes down and you know, oh. <laughs> for every good there's a bad, you know, the yin-yang of life. But she, she got it all wrong and she'd go, up a ladder, down a ladder. And so it perplexed me for a while, but it, it didn't mean anything anyway because she, she taught by example. And so I used to see her uh, acting uh, in the way that she acted and that influenced me more than, you know, the proverbs that she used to teach me. And is that, 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 that well, those childhood experiences uh, taught you the importance of transparency, being a positive role model, um, setting the standards, behaving in a way in which you expect others to behave. Is that where all of that has generated from? Absolutely. And, again, the thing is I don't see it as me being anything special and I don't see it as a quality that should be lauded. It should be a quality that everyone has. So mm -hmm. it's not dissimilar to the way people think I'm a great doctor. Well, I don't think I'm a great doctor. I think I do what every doctor should do. Shouldn't all doctors treat their patients with respect? 
Shouldn't all doctors instill hope in their patients? Shouldn't everyone treat their patients the way they would like to be treated? And that's all I've done. And suddenly I get this sort of celebrity status because I've done what all doctors should do. And it's not dissimilar to those other qualities, you know, where you you treat people decently, you treat people with respect. I mean, hello, isn't that what you should do anyway? Who should ever think they're above anyone else? Mm. Yeah, we all have different expectations around how we want to behave and then how we expect others to behave. And so it just comes down to you being certain about who you are and what you want to do and the the legacy that you want to leave. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But again, like I was saying, I don't think it's – you don't consciously say, look, I would love to leave this legacy behind of uh, treating patients with respect and and respecting patient autonomy. I mean, I never never went out – to say that's the legacy I'd like to leave because, again, it's something that I think should be inherent and natural in all doctors and, and essentially all people. There are tangible things that you do would like to leave behind. You know, I'd like to leave the world in a better position than when I came into it and I'd like to leave the education of uh, neurosurgeons around the world better than when I came into it. So there are some tangible things like that that you do you know, strive for, but those other qualities that you mentioned that I know you have and I know that you respect uh, are things that I think everyone should have. So with that in mind, and you talk about wanting to give your your patients hope, when the odds are against them, now you're very transparent and clear with your prognosis and diagnosis and, and forms of treatment with every single patient you work with, when the odds are against them, how do you give people hope? It's multifactorial. It's not just one thing. It's developing rapport and getting to know the person and what their values are and what their social network is like. Uh, It's treating them like you would like to be treated yourself. It's being factual with the options so that there's no such thing as false information. Uh, And if you add that all up, it's essentially this. Someone comes in with a brain tumor, it's malignant, it's in a bad area, everyone else has told them it's inoperable, and uh, I think it's a terrible tumor, I think the risk is extremely high, and so step number one is you find out who that person is. Now, if that person has a, a great social network, if they uh, have given advanced directives saying that life is so precious, they want to be kept alive at all costs, uh, if they're young and they've got something to look forward to, uh, if quality of life for them is basically just being alive and not necessarily, you know, running along the beach, then of course you're going to treat that person differently than someone who's diametrically opposite. Uh, so your uh, the way you f- the way you uh, state the situation is going to be determined a lot by the person you're talking to. And because a doctor can talk someone out of surgery, they can give them the facts, but they can sort of stress the negatives and not the positives, and they can make them see the glasses half full rather than half empty. So, you know, a doctor does have a lot of power that way, uh, as in the way they phrase the consent or phrase the options. But I try and be as objective as I can. I try and aim it at the intellectual level of the person I'm talking to. I try and respect their autonomy and their wishes, uh, and then I basically leave up to them. You know, uh, this is a terrible tumor. You're likely to be paralyzed after surgery. It's malignant, so you're going to die in the next six to twelve months anyway. 
Uh, but I'm prepared to do it if you're not prepared to give up and you want me to have a shot at it. Have there been any uh, instances where there's been a bit of a medical miracle where, you know, you've you've declared these kind of prognosis or diagnosis on these, these patients and then you've gone in and done the surgery and it's prolonged their life a lot longer than you anticipated? Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, this is not boastful, but that happens every week. Now, every week I, I do someone where I think, oh, God, am I doing the right thing? And so should I talk this patient out of it? And then suddenly they do much better than you think and it's, it's lovely and well, it gives you strength to do it again the next the next week. Now, conversely, I hate to say it, but occasionally you get it wrong. And thankfully, that doesn't happen as many times as you get it right. But when you get it wrong, it's pretty disturbing. I mean, it's really emotionally wretching because, you know, if the outcome is bad, bad, and that's what I tell them. I said, you know, there are four potential outcomes, win-win, win-lose, lose-win, and lose-lose. And the lose-lose is where you do the operation you paralyze them. The tumor is so malignant, it just kills them anyway. So you haven't bought the time and all you've done is not only not buy them time, but you've actually reduced their quality of life in the time that they've got left. And, mm. oh, my God, that is, that's terrible. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I've done that a few times as well. Yeah, that must be a horrific experience. And those times when you're questioning yourself and you're doubting yourself whether what you're doing is the right thing and then something triggers or something changes what what is it within you that keeps you going i guess it's all the good cases that you reflect on and you think to yourself gee i i didn't think that was going to be a good case or a good outcome and it was so that gives you positive reinforcement and then the negative reinforcement ones where it doesn't go as well i mean there's very few patients have actually complained most people go look charlie you know sure we didn't get the time that we thought we'd get you know we weren't prepared to let her die without it she wanted it, it was her wishes. And uh, so even the negative outcomes have a sort of positive take to them. Has anyone ever died on your operating table? No, thankfully. Uh, that's very rare anyway. I have had mm. surgical deaths, though, and they consider it a surgical death if you die within 48 hours of surgery. Uh, mm. Some people classify it within five days or seven days of surgery. So I've certainly had some operative deaths. Thankfully, you can count them on one hand in 30 years. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're pretty bad. But I must say that the ones that did die, it was thankfully not due to my surgical uh, skill. And I know that's a bit of a cop-out, but, you know, I can think of one patient, for example, who, who died about two days later, but he had a massive stroke on the other side of the brain. So it, was, it wasn't even where I was operating. Uh, yeah. And he had bad vascular disease and he had previous strokes. So that's why he died. And I've had another patient who died because he was just so... Uh, sorry, a lady who was so medically unwell, she was old, she would have died from a tumour anyway. Uh, she actually died of a heart attack. I had another one who died of uh, a heart attack because of blood loss. So, you know, certainly from the operation, but uh, if he had a normal sort of heart, he would have survived. Thankfully, the ones that have died as what they call surgical deaths haven't been so much because I've been careless or I've made the wrong surgical decision uh, it's mostly because of comorbidities. Well, you spend so much time going into other people's brains. I'd love to just get a little snapshot into your mindset and how you prepare for really big surgeries. I like to think I'm like a a sportsman because I know that those people, those people like you, uh, get in the zone, and it's a term that is glibly used, but I think it means a lot. And, and basically, what it means is that. You know, all our lives are cluttered and all our brains are cluttered with 
things that are going on, positive, negative, uh, upsetting, enjoyable, you know, there are all these things that clutter our thoughts. And unfortunately, they do, unfortunately, uh, also detract from being focused on your goal. And so what I try and do is get in the zone before surgery. I sit in the corner, I look at the x-rays, my staff know they can't interrupt me. Even if a family member wants to talk to me, they can't. Even if a patient has second thoughts about surgery, they're not allowed to talk to me. Uh, we just cancel the case if they're not prepared for it. So I, I, And that takes about 20 minutes. And again, it's a technique that I've used from the get-go, uh, and I think it's very, very important in terms of my outcomes that I get in the zone and stay totally focused. Especially during really long surgeries, how do you maintain that concentration in, in really big surgeries? Basically, treating the patient like they were a, mem- a member of your own family. There are times, I'm telling you, and again, a lot of people wouldn't admit this, but there are times where you just want to get the hell out of there. You know, you've had uh, a major issue at home. You need to get home and resolve it. Uh, your favourite band's in town and you've got VIP tickets front row and you're going to miss out because they're never going to come back to Australia again. Uh, your shoulders are so sore that it's like burning pain in your shoulders. Your arms have been up in that position for so long. Uh, you're so hungry that you can, you're, you're ravished or you're so thirsty you, you can't even talk, your throat's so dry. So there are these times where you're really challenged and, you, and, and I know why other surgeons at that stage, you know, give up uh, because it's, you know, it's just too hard. But what I do is I just say, okay, now, if that was my daughter on the table, would I want my surgeon to give up because he's thirsty, tired, in a hurry, has other things to go to? Absolutely not. I actually consciously say to myself, because sometimes I do find myself getting tired and wanting to rush and wanting to finish, and I say to myself, now, hang on, hang on, stop right now. If that was your daughter, if that was your mum, would you be rushing or would you not look around the corner or would you not put that extra instrument in to see if there's any tumour left behind? Uh, and and that's what that's what gets me through. Wow, that's powerful. You know, mental health is obviously a really big issue globally and uh, continues to rise. Do you see any developments in the future for innovative approaches to cure outside of just drugs and antidepressant medication? Well... Look, I'm not an expert on mental health, but I have become and am becoming more of an expert on mental health. The reason being is because the brain has always fascinated me, not only its anatomy, but also its physiology, and then, of course, its functionality. Uh, But the problem is that, you know, being a scientist and being the sort of person I am who likes to get in and fix things and, you know, played with Meccano sets and Lego sets when I was a kid, Uh, (laughs) mental health never appealed to me because I couldn't get my hands in there and do something about it. You know, sure, you could make the diagnosis, you could give some medications maybe or give, you know, cognitive behavioural therapy, but it was something that you couldn't really get your hands dirty in. Well, the good news is it's changing. And the reason I've taken an interest is because I have this partner now who was my ex-fellow about eight, nine years ago, a genius, absolute genius, and he's come back to join me. Uh, from Oklahoma. His name is Mike Shugru, and you should remember the name, S-U-G-H-R-U-E, Mike Shugru, because he's going to be a, a Nobel Prize winner one day. Well, he's a genius, and he came back and said, Charlie, look, you know, I've been 
working on a program, a data analytical program that can convert those MRI scans that only gave us anatomical information into an MRI scan that can give you now functional information. I go, yeah, sure. Anyway, he demonstrated it and it is an absolute game changer. Uh, So we can now do MRI scans on people and we can assess their functionality and their uh, and their connections and networks in the brain uh, and 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 see it on a on an actual scan uh, tangibly in front of us even color coded it, it is phenomenal so the whole idea now of course is if we can do that if we can take a patient who's depressed who previously could never get a scan to prove he was depressed could we now use this software package to do a scan on that patient and diagnose depression, even diagnose the different biotypes of depression and other mental illnesses like PTSD and anxiety. We, we are currently gathering all the data using machine learning and AI to, uh, to come up with algorithms and to come up with uh, patterns that may show different mental illnesses. We've actually even taken it one step further and we've now set up a clinic called Singulum Health. That's a bit of a plug. And Singulum Health basically is a clinic whereby people come in with any neurological brain disorder, whether it's mental disorder or an anatomical structural disorder, and we do one of these scans and uh, we then interpret those scans uh, and hopefully help them with either surgery, medications, or a thing called TMS, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's basically a, a big magnet that can actually alter those pathways and alter the networks in the brain to hopefully one day treat effectively all functional disorders of the brain. It's really exciting stuff, but unfortunately it's early in the piece and it's, it's, it's one, of, one of those watch this space type situations. Well, that's extraordinary. It's a very exciting um, advancement. What's something that we can all do day to day that will help us um, generate or promote good brain health? There is scientific evidence to show that your brain will be healthier if you exercise. And so a very, very simple thing is just exercise and you will improve memory. You'll improve the blood flow to those phylogenetically very, sorry, anthropologically very uh, primitive parts of the brain that control memory and behavior. Uh, And the general health of the brain will improve as well. So just simple exercise will improve brain health. And then, of course, there's all those other things like diet, sleep, antioxidants, omega-3s, supplements. the microbiome and modification and alteration of the microbiome. You know, there are a lot of exciting things coming around that will hopefully continue to help us improve our brain health. The microbiome or the gut flora or the skin bacteria actually isn't just a symbiotic relationship with our body. They don't just live independently. One actually determines the health of the other. And therefore, a lot of diseases can be modified and even cured if you change your microbiome, your gut flora or your skin flora. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's, it, I mean, I'm telling you, the science is out there now. It's absolutely no longer mumbo-jumbo. It's, it's real. Did you know, well, for example, true. that the incidence of asthma has gone up directly proportional with the cleanliness of the water of a developing country. So the cleaner the water, the higher the incidence of asthma. Why? 
it's all about the microbiome. It's all about the fact that when you drink dirty water, when you're exposed to bugs as a child, as an infant, it boosts your immune system and it, and it and improves your immune system. It makes your immune system normal. And uh, so I'm not saying everyone should go out there and drink, you know, diphtheria-infested water, but I'm saying that, you know, those bugs that you're exposed to, like when you come out of your mother's vagina, the vaginal commensals and the vaginal bacteria have been shown conclusively to influence your immune system. And that's why these days when you're born cesarean section, they take a swab of the mother's vagina and they rub it in the baby's mouth for that very reason because they know how important it is to be exposed to bugs when you're, when you're young. And if you're not exposed to bugs, then your immune system doesn't develop. It just doesn't become robust. Uh, and that's when you get autoimmune diseases or immune-induced diseases. That's when your immune system is poor and you get a lot of, you know, uh, you get cancer and things like that. It's because that uh, the importance of having a good immune system. Mm. A lot of people may not know that you're also an acupuncturist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, something that I'm very proud of because a lot of my colleagues uh, so blinkered in their approach to health that they think that all the answers are in modern medicine and there's nothing to be gained from complementary alternative treatments. And that's unfortunately a culture that's bred into our uh, medical fraternity. Uh, right from the get-go, we're told that, you know, don't listen to them. They've got nothing to offer you. It's all, it's all about science. You've got to listen to science, 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 evidence-based medicine, all that sort of stuff that's drummed into us. And when I uh, was lecturing at the chiropractic college as a young surgical registrar, I was pulled into the uh, division head's office. I understand you're teaching the chiropractors differential diagnosis. Yes, Mr. Sanzo, you've got to stop that immediately. Uh, and so it's, I guess that was bred by, that was induced by fear, fear that, fear of the unknown. They didn't know what a chiropractor did and fear that they might be. Uh, turf battle between chiropractors and doctors. Now, some of that is, you know, eased off a little bit, but no, it's still there. You know, if you'd read some of the comments after I did Medicine or Myth, uh, all the negative comments were from doctors, all the positive comments were from people with open minds. You see, it all starts from the, our selection of medical students. We don't select medical students based on their open-mindedness. We don't select them on their uh, holistic approach to patients. We don't uh, select medical students on their kindness factor or their consideration factor or the communication skills. None of those things come into play when you select a medical student. You select them purely based on their ability to rote learn and regurgitate information. So that's your first problem. Your first problem is the type of medical person who gets to medical school is a person who is an amazingly disciplined person who can sit in front of a book and rote learn and then regurgitate it. Okay, and then when you get into medicine, what happens? Well, you've got this medical hierarchy that is well documented, and the medical hierarchy says basically you've got to listen to your professor. You've got to, you can't question your attending, your consultant. So they come in, they teach you all this dogma, and if a medical student questions that dogma, they're ridiculed. Uh, not only are they ridiculed, but they're failed in the exam as well. So... Okay, so you choose a medical student who's a good rote learner. You then encourage uh, the doctors not to question their professor and not only encourage them not to question the professor, 
but you penalise them for questioning the professor and questioning dogma. So then you get these doctors coming out and all their lives they, you know, they are oh, they're the top of the med school and they're, they're the best registrar and they get the best positions and the best hospitals. Why? Because they're great rote learners and they're great regurgitators, not because they're people who think outside the box, not because they're people who question dogma, but exactly the opposite. So now you're breeding this group of people who, who just, oh, my God, if you get someone like Charlie Teo who comes along, who thinks outside the box, who does operations that no one else does, who operates even if there's no evidence to show that it works, you've got to destroy someone like that because, you know, they're certainly not part of the club and, and if they get good results, oh, my God, well, you, that's all the more reason why you've got to destroy that person because it makes you look ridiculous. So with that in mind, do you feel like you're ahead of your time? No, I don't think so much ahead of my time because there's been people like me questioning dogma for years. I mean, that's how we've made advances. But those people have suffered. And have I suffered? Oh, my God, I'm still suffering. You know, my colleagues are still trying to destroy me and try and get rid of me. And, uh, I mean, I don't, you know, I used to say that and people think I was paranoid. Now, thank God, it's gone public and it's all in the media. So I think everyone knows that, you know, they are doing everything in their power to destroy me. Uh, so, yeah, it's very hard to be a person who thinks outside the box. It's very hard to be someone who swims against the tide, questions dogma, uh, operates without evidence. Uh, but, but, no, I'm not, I'm not the first to do it. And I certainly won't be the last, I hope. Uh, but, but, but look, for example, my colleagues who did it before me. So I can name probably three or four neurosurgeons who are real left field thinkers, and they're all now long, no longer practicing neurosurgery or they're back overseas from whence they came. Uh, because, the, you know, the Australian culture just could not tolerate them. Let's, um, let's talk about two things that you're extremely passionate about. Number one is your foundation, and number two is your path to veganism. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> the foundation is pretty simple, really. Uh, brain cancer is the worst cancer known to mankind. It kills everyone, uh, and no one survives it. Now, there are some forms of brain cancer that are survivable, but uh, I'm talking about GBM, grade four malignant brain tumor, the most common type. So it carries a 100% mortality rate and only 5% of people live more than uh, five years uh, and only 25% of people live more than two years. So it's a terrible cancer. Uh, it's the deadliest. It's ranked number one in person years lost. It kills more children in Australia than any other disease. Uh, so it's absolutely terrible. Despite those stats, it receives the least amount of funding of all the cancers. So something had to be done. Uh, and uh, so I set up a foundation way back in 2001 called Cure for Life. Uh, that then morphed into Cure Brain Cancer Foundation, and that is now, well, that's still going. I left that one, and but now I've set up another one called the Charlie Teo Foundation, and it's all for the same purpose, to try and find treatments and possibly a cure for brain cancer, the worst type. So and I'm how are you going in that pursuit? I'm extremely proud of the foundation. We are funding very radical, left-field, disruptive scientists 
who uh, we believe may have the answer, uh, and we're doing it very lean and mean. And what I mean by that is my old foundation, unfortunately, wasn't so lean and mean, and that's why I left. Uh, I'm not going to go to the negative side of that, but I left it for that reason. Uh, And I wanted a charity where the majority of the money goes to the cause and not to the actual running of the foundation. so I'm proud to say that our administrative costs are 8%, uh, and that's no spin. That's not a spin. So a lot of people don't include salaries, for example, in their administration costs because they call that raising awareness. But that 8% is, a, is everything. I'm talking about stationery, electricity, uh, rental, hotel bills, airfares, salaries, 8%, which is basically unheard of. And our events costs, in other words, when we have an event, uh, it's running at about 10%. So that means we have a total cost of 18%, uh, and, uh, and that is world's best. You just won't get that better in any, any, in any large charity in the world. So I'm really, really proud of the foundation, and it's called the Charlie Tim Foundation. Now how can people get involved with your foundation if they want to? There's so many things you can do. You can, you know, you can have fundraisers yourself and then just donate the money to us. You can contact us and we can help you have fundraisers. You can just donate directly. You can come to our events, which are unfortunately on hold during corona, but, you know, balls and cocktail parties and things like that. And so if you go to the website, it'll tell you many different ways of getting involved. And in terms of veganism, well, you know, I'd like to say that I'm 100% vegan, but I'm probably closer to 98% vegan, almost totally vegan. But, uh, yeah, and people say why. Well, it's pretty simple, really. It's, uh, it's all about ethical reasons. Uh, sure, there are some health benefits. There are environmental benefits. Uh, but, uh, but, no, it was all about the animals to me because it all started when I saw some of those uh, videos of uh, cruelty to industry animals, and I thought, oh, God, that's terrible. But then I would rationalise in my own mind that it was the exception to the rule and then I'd continue eating meat. But then another one would come out and another one and then I realised that, you know, unfortunately it's rife in the industry. It's endemic in the industry that cruelty is just part of the meat industry. It's part of the dairy industry. It's just part of it because there's no such animal that, you know, any animal that has a pain response wants to survive. So you can't say to me that some animals are born and bred to die or it's in their nature to die. If they have the pain response, then they want to get away from pain, which means they want to survive. And if they want to survive, they want to have families. They want to have children. They want those. They see those children grow up. They want to live a full life, and they, they don't want to die. So, you know, even if you treat them nicely, in other words, free range, and, you know, some people treat the animals very, very well, they still don't want to be killed. Well, and on that front, you know, we're talking about health and wellness and obviously veganism um, is your choice around maintaining a sense of personal health and well-being and vitality. Is, is that one of the things that drew you or drew you to the Inner Origin platform and why, why you aligned with Inner Origin? What appealed to me about Inner Origin is that they actually go out and make sure that their products are organic and make sure their products are pure. And so they don't just depend on someone else telling them that. They don't depend on some stamp. They don't depend on some bureaucrat saying that, oh, yeah, this is definitely organic. They will go out and look at the source and make sure it is exactly what they say it is. And so you can trust 
their assessment and you can trust their regulation. Good to hear. Well, I don't think there's much left that I really want to go through. You've shared so much about your story and your life and your choices and your positioning in life. So I actually just want to end with one final question, if that's all right, Charlie. Yeah, sure. If you can go back in time, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? What I'd say to my 18-year-old self is, listen, it's, it's okay to be different. Uh, it's okay not to be one of the boys. It's okay not to be uh, a sheep and not to be not, not to blend with everyone else. Uh, because when you're young, that's exactly what you want to do. You don't want to stand out in the crowd. You want to be one of the boys. You want to be the same as them. Well, Charlie, you've benefited us by being so generous with your time and your knowledge. You're benefiting the world with your skill and your ability to treat people, give them hope and change their lives. And we're so grateful for it and we're so indebted to you for your passion and enthusiasm. So thank you so much for sharing this time with us today and uh, I wish you continued good health and happiness. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, thanks, Lane.